Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. I've heard it's uh, it's pretty hot down there in Vegas, Jacob, but I also heard you guys have not gotten any monsoons this year. Yes, which makes it that much worse. <laughs> well, the monsoons add a little humidity, so I can imagine it's, you know, not terrible. Uh, haha, that's where you'd be wrong. <laughs> well, it's a nice balmy 85 here in Reno today with a little overcast. But anyway, on this week's episode of the podcast, you've got an audio story for us on new changes to Title IX and how they'll impact Nevada, Jacob. After that, reporter Jasmine Orozco-Rodriguez tells us about her story that involves immigration documents, federal investigations, and a mail carrier in Salt Lake City. And at the end of the episode, editors John Ralston and Elizabeth Thompson have an exciting announcement for the listeners. But before we get to the rest of our show, we wanted to give you the latest information on just where things stand regarding the coronavirus pandemic in Nevada. Megan Messerly covers healthcare for the Nevada Independent, and she's been our go-to expert on all things coronavirus. As always, Megan, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So this week, uh, we wanted to look specifically at the numbers. This is going to be a data-heavy COVID update this week. So noting that today is August 13th, we're recording in the afternoon as usual. What do the numbers look like? Yeah, so we're sitting just shy of about 59,000, 6,000 cases. As of right now, it's 58,650. Um, we're at a little over 1,000 deaths, so 1,030 deaths. Um, it's important to note we're recording on Thursday. So death number 1,000 was reported by Elko County on Wednesday night, um, and there have been more deaths reported since today, uh, some deaths in Clark County and then a few more deaths in Nye County as well. Uh, I think the interesting thing to note is that, you know, we've seen deaths continue to go up, even though we've seen a little improvement in the case numbers so far. So why might that be that cases are going down, but we're still seeing uh, deaths go up even a little bit? Right. So there's a good reason for this. And that's because you have to think about the course of the virus, right? So if you are exposed to someone today, you know, maybe it takes a week for you to get sick, show symptoms. Um, And then if you are going to be one of those more serious cases that requires hospitalization or or potentially ends up passing away from this this illness, um, that just takes some time, right? It takes a lot of time for someone to become sick enough that they require hospital care. And then when someone's in the hospital, usually they're receiving, you know, some kind of intensive treatment related to COVID. Um, They could be potentially on a ventilator if it's serious enough. And in those cases, it just sort of takes a while for the illness to progress. Um, And so we expect to see a lag between the case data and the death data. In general, the figure that state officials have been using is that there's, you know, about a five-week lag or the deaths we're seeing today could be the result of infections from about five weeks ago. So if we are going to start seeing a decrease in the trends of deaths, we wouldn't start to see that quite yet. Interesting thing to note with the case data too, we've talked about before in my coronavirus contextualized stories, and we've probably talked about before on this this podcast, but the case data can also be an unreliable indicator because it's just a sample of the people who went and got tested, right? And who tested positive for the virus. There might be more folks who weren't sick enough to ever get tested. So a lot of it is a a coefficient of, of, you know, testing and what we're capturing and things like that. But that's why we look to numbers like hospitalizations, which we've seen start to go down just a little bit in the last couple of days. It's hard to say where the trend is going, if it's going to be a a continued downward trend or not. We kind of saw a little bit of a dip and now it's been up and down um, a little bit for the last couple of days. But that's why in general, we like to look at hospitalizations and deaths, because if you're someone who's 
you know, hospitalized for COVID-19, that means you're sick enough to be seeking treatment in the hospital. And so that data is a little bit more accurate. You're less likely to miss the seriously ill folks from COVID-19. Same with deaths. Um, you're less likely to miss people who, who die from COVID-19 because that's obviously very serious. And, you know, if you have a, if you have a mild case, you might not get tested, but, you know, a hospitalization, you probably are going to show up to the hospital if you need treatment. So that data tends to be more accurately recorded. Okay. And I guess just going back to the, to the testing and to the death data that all this goes back to what we talked about last week, that, you know, the coronavirus doesn't happen overnight and a lot of this stuff takes weeks, not days. And so, uh, we'll just have to keep an eye on the data and always Megan, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. If you want to know more about the coronavirus in Nevada, you can always follow Megan on Twitter at Megan Messerly or head to our website, thenevadaindependent.com, where we have a comprehensive coronavirus data dashboard and Megan's weekly coronavirus contextualized stories. Today, new federal rules on Title IX that will fundamentally change the way colleges and universities handle cases of sexual misconduct will go into effect. But what exactly do those changes mean? Nevada Independence reporter and producer Jacob Solis has the story. To really understand how we got here, we have to take a trip back to 2017. Donald Trump had just been inaugurated and Betsy DeVos ushered in as the newest Secretary of Education. A high-profile school choice advocate and longtime Republican donor, DeVos had some radical changes in mind for the nation's education systems. Those changes included taking a fresh look at Title IX. That's the federal law which governs sex-based discrimination on college campuses and which provides a framework for colleges to investigate sexual misconduct, including harassment and assault. Through intimidation and coercion, the failed system has clearly pushed schools to overreach. With the heavy hand of Washington tipping the balance of her scale, the sad reality is that Lady Justice is not blind on campuses today. That's DeVos speaking at George Mason University in 2017, giving an opening salvo to what would become a years-long quest to fundamentally change the due process rules laid out by Title IX. Amid widely publicized missteps at some of America's biggest and most prestigious universities, DeVos and other critics of Obama-era Title IX regulations said it was too easy for a false accusation to slip through the cracks, criticizing low evidence standards, inconsistent application of the rules, and a widespread lack of due process. The education department under DeVos spearheaded what would become a years-long process of combing through Title IX and, in DeVos's own words, reframing what it does in cases of sexual harassment. The truth is that the system established by the prior administration has failed too many students. Survivors, victims of a lack of due process, and campus administrators have all told me that the current approach does a disservice to everyone involved. Though it faced fierce criticism early on, that process finally quietly ended this May, when the Education Department released more than 2,000 pages of legal guidance. But that guidance was released in the midst of a global pandemic that at the time had shuttered colleges and spurred tens of millions in higher ed budget cuts in Nevada alone, and it was chock full of major changes. For one, the new rules increased the burden of proof required in cases of a hostile environment. The old rules needed you to prove conduct was one of three things, severe, persistent, or pervasive. Now, conduct must be all three, severe, persistent, and pervasive. Uh, 
They also implement new jurisdictional requirements which limit investigations to U.S. soil, so no study abroad investigations, and they limit any investigation to property owned or controlled by the university, meaning no off-campus investigations. And in maybe the most controversial change of them all, it would require not only an investigation, but also a mandatory hearing with a live hearing with live cross-examination in real time. Um, and so that's a huge difference um, that was not common on a lot of college campuses, definitely not on ours. That's Maria Doucet-Paris. She's the Title IX coordinator at the University of Nevada, Reno. And she was one of the people in Nevada's higher ed system who spent months poring over the new rules and interpreting how they changed the state's existing Title IX regulations. But all this brings us back to last week, August 7th. After three months of tweaking Nevada's higher ed regulations to match the new federal standard, the Board of Regents, which governs higher education, had just a week before federal deadlines to put these new rules in place or risk jeopardizing roughly $420 million in federal funding. When Regents finally arrived at the Title IX agenda item, it wasn't long before the debate grew heated. Bad laws are meant to be broken. As policymakers, we have the power to halt this terrible and harmful law. I caution those who vote yes on this, as you will be standing on the side of rapists, violent criminals, and assaulters. I'm voting on behalf of survivors and all victims of sexual violence today. I'm a strong no. That's the voice of Regent Lisa Levine. Though several regents chimed in to express disappointment or criticism of the new rules, and many pushed back on her assertion that voting yes was standing on the side of rapists, none spoke on the issue like Levine, whose comments largely echoed what other critics have been saying for years. Their argument, in essence, changing the rules to look like a criminal court will only serve to drive down the reporting of such offenses, even while what data we do have show that these offenses are already underreported. Here's how Levine later characterized that chilling effect in an interview with me a few days after that meeting. One in five women in college experience some kind of sexual assault. Uh, one in 16 men even experience some kind of sexual assault while in college. And so we want to try to decrease that so students don't have that emotional and physical impact on them that can be very severe uh, for the rest of their lives. But the story of that Regents meeting doesn't end with a policy debate. Levine and others raised questions about the timing of the rule changes and questioned why the system's lawyer or Attorney General Aaron Ford hadn't sought to join one of four lawsuits looking to stop the federal change. Those questions even prompted Ford to call into the meeting himself, triggering a brief disagreement over parliamentary procedure and, finally, this exchange between Levine and Board of Regents Chief of Staff Dean Gould. The top law officer of our state try to clarify his position. I call the question. And part we, of the reason is because... Come yeah. on, she's out of order. Come go, on. Call, guys. Go ahead and do the vote, please, Dean. And I was also just reminded that the federal funds... Oh, I got Regent muted. Levine, I'm going to ask you to please mute yourself. You're the out of order. The federal funds don't okay. even get removed. I don't want a man speak, but I will have to if you continue to child speak. So please stop. Even amid an already controversial policy debate, the incident came to define the meeting. A tweet containing a video of the remark spread like wildfire on social media, with nearly every top Democratic politician, from Governor Steve Sisolak to Representative Susie Lee to even the state's treasurer, Zach Conine, all denouncing Gould's comment. 
But Gould later doubled down, saying in his statement that his remark was a reference to a meeting in July in which Levine had accused him of mansplaining open meeting rules to her. As of Sunday, Regents Chair Mark Dubrava told the board in a letter that the matter was still under investigation, but he also criticized a lack of appropriate language and proper decorum at recent meetings. The board ultimately voted to adopt the new guidelines 10-3, to but amid all this, there's still a number of questions over exactly what happens next. The Regents were set to consider joining a multi-state lawsuit challenging the rules implementation. But that may be in doubt after the suit stalled Wednesday when a D.C. Circuit Court judge denied a request to block the implementation, in part because the plaintiffs couldn't prove that they would suffer, quote, substantial irreparable harm while the lawsuit continues. At the institutional level, preparations for the implementation of these rules are still moving forward. Ducey Paris, the Title IX coordinator at UNR, says the new changes, though they are major, aren't the end-all be-all of adjudicating sexual misconduct on campus. A crucial caveat to all this, she says, is that there's still a secondary process without a live hearing that victims could still opt into. She couldn't say whether or not the changes will have a chilling effect, but she says the problem now is largely making sure that students know about all their options in the first place. I think initially it's going to be confusing. I mean, I, I think that's just the honest answer um, because, you know, everyone's heard it's all on the news. Title IX's changed. And, you know, if this, if it's not, you know, if it doesn't happen on campus or whatever, they're going to have to dismiss. And so everybody's up in arms and that's what has people's attention. And I think even at that meeting, uh, at the Board of Regents meeting, I think it was missed by many that, hey, that's not the end of the story. <laughs> Um, but unfortunately, that's, a, that's the end of the story for a lot of people because that's all that they know because that's what's publicized. If you want to read Jacob's full story on the new changes to Title IX, head to the NevadaIndependent.com. Hi, I'm Joey Lovato up here in Reno, and I am joined by reporter Jasmine Orozco-Rodriguez, also up here in Reno. And Jasmine, you have this story. It kind of involves a lot of moving parts, you know. It involves two states, not just Nevada, but also Utah. And it's, it's kind of this horrible story about the, the, the mail system and immigration. And can you kind of just explain, you know, what happened, what it's about? Yeah, so a couple of years ago, around 2018, a lot of Elko immigrants started facing the same problem or realizing that they had the same problem and in that they weren't receiving their federal immigration documents like their green cards, which are their permanent resident cards or their workers permits. And so obviously they were panicking because, you know, people who don't have a valid and updated workers permit can lose their jobs and people without a, an updated and valid green card can't leave the country. And so many of them had to postpone or cancel any travel plans that they had. And also, the, I mean, the immigration process to even receive these documents itself is really time consuming, it's stressful, and it's costly. For a DACA renewal, each time you renew, it's $500. So for one person I spoke to who was affected by this, she had to apply twice in a year even though her DACA was valid, she just didn't physically have it. So that was an extra 500 that she wouldn't have had to pay for another two years. So mm -hmm. it was just, you know, really stressful and inconvenient for 
a lot of Elko residents and also the surrounding area like Spring Creek, Lamoille, Battle Mountain, and West Wendover. People living in those areas were also affected. And so, you know, why, why were they not receiving these documents? Right, yeah. So they, as they started to look into the matter, they actually went to the Elko Hispanic Services for Help, which is run by Eloisa Mendoza. And she told me that she started tracking all of their shipments using the tracking numbers. And so basically she found this common thread that all of their shipments were stopping at the Salt Lake City, Utah post office. And she didn't know why they weren't making it to the Elko post office. And so after many months of trying to get answers from the Elko post office and from the USCIS office, which is the United States Citizen and Immigration Services, they decided to finally contact Senator Catherine Cortez Masto's office. And they had some claims that dated as far back as like September 2017. So the senator took a trip down to Elko as well. She has yearly trips, I think, that she takes to the rural areas. And she was able to hear from some of these constituents about the issues that they were having. And so her office reached out to the federal branches and they heard back this summer um, in June from the office of the inspector general. And they, the letter told her that there had already been an investigation into the claims when she had reached out. And so the letter was to inform her that the investigation determined that a postal office employee in the Salt Lake City office had intentionally discarded the missing documents. And so that's why they weren't making it to Elko as they were just being tossed into the trash. I mean, that's a federal crime to, to, to tamper with mail, to throw away mail and destroy, you know. So is, is this postman, postwoman, are they facing any sort of charges? Obviously, again, this is a federal ordeal now because it's cross state lines. It involves the post office. So what are the consequences here? Yeah. So the accused employee, because her trial isn't over yet, she was immediately removed from her from the workplace, obviously, for the accusation. And the case was picked up by the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Utah for prosecution. And she's been indicted on two counts of delay, destruction of mail. And her criminal case trial is pending. An earlier date of April was canceled because of the pandemic. And a new date hasn't been announced, but the penalty for the crimes that she's facing include a fine or jail time that doesn't exceed five years or both. And her lead attorney told me that she has pleaded not guilty to the charges. So it's all just kind of up in the air right now as to what will happen and what, if any, penalty she will face. And what about the people affected? You know, are they are they now receiving their documents? Have they had some sort of leeway because they weren't receiving their documents? Yeah, I think like the woman that I spoke to who had to renew her DACA more than once in a year and had to pay that additional fee, she didn't get that money reimbursed. But the third time that she had to apply for her DACA to get to her, that was when the senator's office was already involved. So that fee was waived, the third Mm -hmm. one. So at least she didn't have to pay, you know, $1,500 in a year. And as far as I know, there are no more delays. People are steadily and regularly receiving their documents now. But it was definitely a very confusing and just panicky period for these residents. Yeah. A group of people that were specifically adversely affected by this issue were first-time DACA applicants because the program was rescinded the same month the complaints were filed in 2017. 
And so they haven't been able to reapply yet because the program itself is just really up in the air as the Department of Homeland Security works to fully reevaluate its place in our country. And so they, they were never able to recuperate, but everyone else, thankfully, who had already applied and was renewing their DACA has been able to. And people have now received their green cards and are back to work. So hopefully this doesn't happen again. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, Jasmine, well, thank you so much for doing all this reporting and for telling me about this story. Of course. Thanks, Joey. Hey, it's Joey Lovato again up here in Reno, and I am joined from our two editors, Elizabeth Thompson and John Ralston down in Las Vegas. And you guys have an announcement to make, so I'll let you guys take it from here. We do, and we're so excited to be doing it on the podcast, and I'm, I'm going to let John do the honors. We put a little save the date note in the Daily Indie a couple times recently that we were going to do something special on October 3rd, uh, and we're now going to say out loud what it is. So go ahead, John, tell everybody. So this is very exciting. This is something that Elizabeth and I have been talking about for a while since we attended something known as TribFest, which is the Texas Tribune, which is the most successful and largest nonprofit journalism site in the country. They they, they put this on once a year. It's several days, and it has all kinds of fantastic speakers and panels. Well, on October 3rd, mark this date down in your calendars. I'm going to say it over and over again. Everywhere I go, October 3rd is going to be the premiere of IndieFest which we hope will be an annual event, just as the TribFest is. And we've got some great guests already lined up, Elizabeth, and this is going to be a full-day extravaganza. It's going to be very reasonably priced, and it's going to be at least the first one because of the new pandemic world. Uh, It is going to be all virtual. Yes, we, so all of this in the vein that we started the Indie in, which was not only to bring you news uh, and opinion on the topics that matter to you most, but also to bring you meaningful uh, and informative civic events. So uh, this event is is designed to be that. Uh, We haven't had an event in a while, so I'm excited that we're doing something, and I'm pretty happy that we're doing it about a month before the election, because it's going to give us all kinds of opportunities uh, to talk about issues in Nevada, I think including question one, which it looks like might be the only ballot question, but no guarantees on that. We're still getting our agenda together. I do want to tease, but we're not going to announce it yet. We have what I consider a great main event that will wrap the day in the evening. John, you will be moderating two individuals who will be announced at the future day, but I think it's going to be the perfect way to wrap that event as we look towards the November election. Yeah, the, the, the marquee guests who will be capping off the day, as, as Elizabeth says, uh, are, are going to be recognizable uh, national figures. People, when they see those names uh, on, on the agenda for IndieFest, are going to say one word, and that word is, wow. And then hopefully right after they say, wow, they will be buying a ticket. Uh, because uh, I, I want to remind everybody listening that we are a nonprofit, uh, a 501c3. We only survive on the generosity of donors who appreciate uh, what this remarkable team of journalists is doing. Some of them or all of them will be involved in IndieFest in some way. And uh, I, I will also tease 
that we're going to have a Spanish side to, so, to, to this uh, program. So we are very excited about this. Uh, we're going to be putting out all of the details very, very soon. And, and we hope that this becomes an event that people can enjoy for many years to come. Yes, and I want to say out loud and just invite the readers to uh, the listeners and the readers to kind of wrap this up that we have a pretty good idea of where we want to go with most of the panels and the roundtables and debates, but we do have room on the agenda for one or two more things. And so we're looking for ideas from you about what you'd like to see, whether it's an interview or a roundtable conversation or some kind of face-off, whatever that might be. So send your ideas to editors at theenvyindy.com sometime in the next week or so uh, so that we can get started on that. And, and we're going to throw it back to Joey here, but I, I assume, Joey, that there is going to be an overwhelming reader and listener call in and, and, and mail in for having a Joey and John talk about movies panel. So you beat me, I, you beat me to it. I was already going to suggest it. <laughs> can you imagine that? It, it would be, it would be like the Saturday night live skit. I was thinking it would be more like network, but you know, we'll see. <laughs> I'm mad as hell and I just can't take it anymore. But right. John Elizabeth, thank you for announcing Indie Fest and hopefully the listeners and readers and any indie enthusiasts can join us and you know send us your ideas and uh, make sure to donate as well so thanks for thanks for being on the podcast for a bit guys thank you for listening to this episode of indie matters we'd like to thank lisa levine maria Dusay paris megan messerly jasmine orozco rodriguez john ralston and elizabeth thompson for being on the show this week If you like listening to the podcast, consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen. If you have comments, questions, or just want to tell us what a good job we are doing, you can email us at joey at theenvyindy.com or jacob at theenvyindy.com. Our theme song was written and performed by Reno band People With Bodies, and you can find more of their music on Spotify and Bandcamp. Additional music on this week's episode comes from Lance Conrad and Storyblocks, with archival audio from C-SPAN and the Nevada System of Higher Education. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer, Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.